Romans chapter 8, and we will begin reading with the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. We'll end our reading there this evening. Trust that the Lord will bless his reading of his word to our hearts. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for the Word of God and the preciousness of it. And Lord, we pray tonight that as Thy Word is preached, Thou wilt help the weaknesses of the preacher. And Lord, that Thou wouldst greatly aid the hearers. Lord, Stir up fallow ground. Break up fallow ground. Allow us to receive the word as a good seed. And Father, increase the sowing of the seed. And do it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been for the past couple of Sundays, this one and the past one, looking at themes in the Reformation. And so, tonight... I want to draw your attention to a book that was Martin Luther's favorite. 
Martin Luther said that there was one book that he wrote that he would want to be kept from burning. He said, you can burn all of my books, but this one book I want you to preserve. Some have actually called this book the centerpiece of the Reformation. And the book that I'm referring to is the book called The Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will was a book that Luther actually wrote in response to another book. There was a scholar named Erasmus. And Erasmus was a very, very intelligent man. Schooled in the philosophers. He was what you would call a humanist, not in the sense we think of it today. But he was a man of great learning. And he wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. And he asserted that the will of man was free. Erasmus wanted reform to take place in the Catholic Church, but moral reform. He didn't want to see doctrinal reform. He didn't really agree with the doctrines of the reformers. He didn't agree with justification by faith. He didn't agree with the, as they would see, many of them, the mass being blasphemous. He didn't agree with their desire to do away with the papacy. Erasmus simply said, the problem with Rome is not a foundational issue, it's merely the externals. But Luther, when this book was written, he couldn't let the freedom of the will go unchallenged, could he? And so Luther, as Luther characteristically was, wrote a very scathing response to Erasmus. And in this book, The Bondage of the Will, he asserted what he believed to be the actual heart of all of the doctrines of the Reformation. And you may think that's strange. This is the heart? I want you to hear the words of Luther as he closed his book, The Bondage of the Will. And I quote, In this, moreover, I give you great praise, speaking to Erasmus, and proclaim it. You alone, in preeminent distinction from all others, have entered upon the thing itself. The grand turning point of the cause. And have not wearied me with those irrelevant points about popery, purgatory, indulgences, and other like baubles, rather than causes with which all have hitherto tried to hunt me down, though in vain. You and you alone saw what was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned. And therefore you attacked the vital part at once. From my heart, I thank you. Now Luther thanks Erasmus because by this great scholar attacking this issue, it made it a popular subject. But do you hear what Luther is saying? The vital part, the great hinge upon which all of the Reformation turned, was one's doctrine of the will of man. 
Is that not staggering? I have heard somebody say one time that the hinge of all of the doctrines of Reformed theology is limited atonement or the fact that Christ perfectly satisfied all the demands of God for His people. But that is not the hinge. The hinge is the bondage of the will. For Luther, if man's will was free, the Reformation was done. If man's will was in bondage to sin, the Reformation stands. You see, because the whole machinery of Rome all of the superstitious observances of the people in order to keep themselves in a state of grace and work through the sacraments and all of the rest, worked from the great presupposition that man's will can perform righteous deeds. And if man cannot do anything righteous in and of himself, the whole of the building of Roman Catholicism falls flat. All of the machinery is vain. All of the superstition is a joke. If man's will is not free. But someone might say, well, isn't the debate over now? I mean, Luther debated with Erasmus, but today is it not over? But it's not over. The doctrine of Rome is still that man's will is free. Now, Rome holds that man's will is in bondage to sin, but that grace can make it to a point where it is completely free to choose good or evil, almost like a middle ground. You're not saved, you're not lost, you're not dead in your sins, you're not alive to God, but you're in the middle ground where you can go either way. That's not the bondage of the will. But not only with Rome, but in the great majority of churches across the face of the United States of America, we have a terrible disease of easy believism that is all across America. And the presupposition behind which easy believism works is that man's will is free. And that is the great hinge, not only then but now, to the propagation and the promotion of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. So, this evening, I want us to consider the bondage of the will. And I don't want to merely put before you the Reformation doctrine once again. I want us to see the Scriptures what saith the Scriptures? What says the Word of God? Now, before we deal with the bondage of the will, we need to answer the question, what is man's will? That is a serious question. What is man's will? And when we consider man, man is made up of an intellect, his soul, an intellect, emotion, and will. So what is the will? When we think about man's will, we're talking about two things that are in view. Man's desires or his inclinations, and then man's choices. 
For man to have a will means that he both has inclinations, desires, or affections that are behind his ability to choose anything. And as the Lord Jesus taught, one's desires control one's actions. In Matthew 12, verses 33 through 34, Jesus said, Either make the tree good and the fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? How can ye, who are in a state of evil, who have, a, who have hearts that are inclined to evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. And so Jesus is laying down this fundamental principle that the actions are controlled by the affections. The actions are determined by the disposition, by the inclinations, by the desires. And when Jesus refers to the heart here, the word heart in the New Testament is often um, used to refer to the will and even the desires of the will. So when Jesus says that their hearts were behind their speech, he is saying the exact same thing that we are saying, that their hearts determined their actions. And this means that no one is completely free. No one is completely free. Now you may say, how can you say such a thing? But tell me, is God free? And yet God is unable to sin because God's disposition is for holiness, is for righteousness. God cannot. He is unable to sin. His will is controlled. What about the saints in heaven? Would you say the saints in heaven are not free? But the saints in heaven cannot sin. Why? Because their hearts have been made perfect. So their inclinations and their desires are perfect. Not mixed with any desire for sin. So that their actions now are perfect. What will we say of Christ? Would we say that Christ is not free? As a man... Jesus could not sin. And yet, was his temptation not real? He felt the temptation to sin greater and stronger than any human being has ever felt. There was one man who described it in this way. When you put pressure on a pencil, you don't have to put much before the lead snaps but you can put a lot of pressure on a bar of iron and it won't snap. And so the devil and sin and the world and the lusts of our own hearts puts an amount of pressure on us as human beings. But we, like a pencil, can snap. But the humanity of Jesus was so in union with the deity of Jesus 
that the weight of temptation could be pressed with all the forces of hell upon his soul and he would never snap. And so we have no idea the weight, the depth of the temptation Jesus experienced, which is why he is a sympathetic Savior. He understands temptation very well. And Jesus, although pressed, could not sin. And yet would we say, Jesus is not free. Did Christ have a free will? No one has a completely free will. Because your will is controlled by what you are. Or your actions are controlled by what you are. Are. Now, when I say that man is not free, I want to be careful that we understand that that is only in a sense. Man is free. But man is free to do what he wants. Man is free to obey the lusts of his own heart. But man is not free to change his heart. Man is free to act in accord with his desires. But man is not free to act not in accord with his desires. So man has liberty. He is a free agent. He is not a puppet. God is not the puppet master in heaven taking little puppet strings and deterministically forcing man to do whatever he wills. No, man is free. Free, but how? Free to do what his heart desires, which is what? Sin. Man used to have a heart that was inclined towards righteousness. In the garden, man was not created neutral. Man was created with a heart inclined towards good. And when man sinned, God withdrew himself from man. Which is why the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4 verse 18 that mankind in sin is alienated from the life of God. The life of God is the source of every good in man. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7 that in my flesh, in me, dwells no good thing. No spiritually good thing dwells in man outside of the life of God. And when man sinned, he was alienated from God. God withdrew from the soul of man. And so man's desires became sinful and became evil and became wicked. And there is not a vestige of goodness in man because there is not a vestige of God in man. So man's alienated from the life, the life of God. And so man became completely sinful. He lost all righteousness and he gained a desire for sins. So that his bend now, his inclination now, his affections now, his longing now is for sin. Not for goodness, not For righteousness. And so, when we say that, we say that man 
is unable. It's said that man, we speak about man's inability. Inability. He has an inability to do any spiritual good. He has an inability to know, love, or act in any spiritual good. Man does not, though, have no conscience. That's not what is meant by inability. Man can still perceive things that are morally true and things that are morally evil, or morally right and morally evil. I don't mean that. We do not mean that man cannot, men cannot do moral things. Men can do moral things. They can obey the law in a very external fashion, but they can never obey the law and the spirit of the law. They may be honest, they may not murder, but that is not considered righteous in the sight of God. Man can, though, perform moral actions. That's not what we mean. We also do not mean that all men are as sinful as possible. What Luther asserted, and what the New Testament writers asserted, and what is absolutely earth-shattering... And the foundation of the gospel of free grace is that man is unable and unwilling to do any spiritual good. But we need to do more than simply say that. We need to prove that. And so I turn you to the scriptures. In Genesis 8 verse 21, the Bible says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imaginations of man's heart is evil from his youth. The imaginations, the purposes, the desires, the inclinations, and the actions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Please understand that although a child, a baby, or may not be able to understand or at a certain age, they're not able to comprehend maybe the difference between moral right and moral wrong. But that does not mean that the condition of their heart is anything but inclined towards evil. And so all are in need of grace from his youth. Then in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, just another statement about the heart. The heart of man is deceitful and above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Man is referred to in the scriptures as a slave. A slave in bondage, in chains to sin. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 speaks of sinful man as a slave. He uses the word servant, but the word servant is the New Testament word for slave. And he says, but God, in verse 17, be thanked that ye were the servants or slaves of sin. In verse 18, he says that in salvation the Romans were made free from sin. In verse 20, he again says, For when ye were the slaves or servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. 
You were either you are either a slave to sin and free from righteousness, or as the Apostle Paul continues to say, and their conversion they became slaves to righteousness and free from sin. But the man who is lost and not born again is a slave. A slave. He's not just he's not just in complete control of his will. I can do whatever I want when I want. I can do good when I want to do good, and I can do evil when I want to do evil. You may be able to do morally good things or, and choose between moral right and moral evil, but man is a slave to sin. He cannot change the inclinations of his heart, and no matter what he does, he cannot change the fact that at the soul of what he is, he hates God. And that is a real issue. Why? Why? Why do you do good things morally? Why do you do X, Y, Z? Why? Well, I do it because I'm supposed to do it. I do it because I'm a person who goes to church. I do it because my parents want me to do it. I do it because my friends want me to do. But you will find if you try to change your heart, you will find that you will not be able to make yourself love God. You can't. I remember meeting with a missionary when I, I believed that the Lord was working in my heart to bring me to Christ. And the missionary said to me, for three hours he spoke with me, and he said, you need to just believe on the Lord Jesus. Trust in Christ. Then I remember saying to the missionary, what, what is it to trust Christ? Well, you just rest on Him. It may seem so easy and sound so simple to you, but to me, I said, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. And no matter how hard I tried, I, I felt like I just couldn't, I didn't even understand it. I was just blind to it. I couldn't understand what does it mean to rest in Christ? What is saving faith? I, I didn't understand until God opened my blind eyes. And by faith, I just saw Jesus to finish the work. But you, O oh man who's a sinner, not born again, as a slave. Have you ever seen a slave cast off his own chains? Have you ever seen a slave rise up and say, All right, master, it's time for you to let me go. I don't think so. Man is in bondage. To sin. He is a slave. Sin is his master. Sin has him bound. And isn't it a sad thing that people think that they're, they're in control and they're strong and they have liberty and freedom and I'm my own man and I will do whatever I want to do. I will go here and I will go there. But you're fooled. Isn't, you're not your own man. Sin says go and you go. Sin says get up and you get up. Sin says lie down and you lie down. Sin is your master. You are a slave to sin. And that is what the Apostle Paul is saying. You're a slave to sin. You're not free. You're blind. You don't understand. You think you're free. But you're a slave. A slave to sin. Man's will. Is not free. 
But then also I turn you to Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul describes in very clear details for us the fact that man's will is not free. In verses 7 through 8 we read, we'll begin with verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now follow this, please, with me. There are two groups that the Apostle Paul is speaking of. And they're the same two groups he spoke of in Romans 6. There are a group of people who are slaves to sin, and there are a group of people who are slaves to righteousness. And the Apostle Paul simply uses a different designation. He calls the first group of people, they that mind the things of the flesh. Now the word mind is the Greek word for the inclinations of the will. It is the Greek word for the bend of someone's heart. There's a group of people that mind the things of the flesh. And then there's another group of people that mind the things of the spirit. So you have two groups and only two groups. One group, they live a lifestyle in accordance with their desires. They live after sin, after the flesh. The other group, they mind the things of the spirit. They're saved. They have new desires. Now they walk in those new desires. And there are only two groups. The first group, according to verse 6, leads to death. The second group, the spiritually minded, leads to life and peace. But notice, please, verses 7 and 8. The carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And now we'll come back to the phrase, this, this phrase, enmity with God. But notice, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. As long as someone is in the flesh, watch Paul's words, neither indeed can be. Now, that is a statement of ability. It is not possible for someone who is in the flesh, someone who is not saved, not in the Spirit, someone who is in the flesh, to obey the law of God. They cannot be subject to the law of God. And then Paul makes an even further statement that is even more narrow and more piercing in verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. People that are in the flesh do not have the faculty, the ability to please God. Because why? Because their will is in bondage to sin. Now, repentance is pleasing to God, is it not? Faith is pleasing to God, is it not? How can, based on this text, a man who is yet in his flesh, 
repent of all of his sins, turning away from his sins, purposing to live and to follow Jesus, and by faith turn away from every trust and everything to lean wholly upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Is that not pleasing to God? And if it is pleasing to God, a man who is in the flesh cannot do it. It is not possible. A man must first be born of the Spirit. And faith and repentance are fruits of the new birth. Regeneration precedes faith, but it all happens in one moment in time. Nobody sits and is born again. And then some later day they believe. It all happens in one moment at time, but logically, regeneration precedes faith and repentance. A man in the flesh cannot please God. And imagine what Luther could have done with this text and what he did do to Rome. A man who is in the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't matter what else he does. And today, to many who are saying, you just, need to, you just need to believe and then you'll be born again. You just need to repent and then you'll be born again. And a man in the flesh can decide your will is free. And if you say that man's will is not free, then you are absolutely unscriptural, they would say. If you say that man's will is not free, you are denying a fundamental teaching of Scripture. Man is free. But Paul says man is not free. He cannot do something. What can he not do? He cannot please God. He is not free. But even beyond the lack of freedom, notice what Paul says. To be carnally minded is enmity against God. To have a heart that is bent towards sin, and I have mentioned this before, is to have a heart that is an enemy of God. We must understand that sin is always personal. It is always against God. And the heart of the matter is that man's sinful heart is against God. God. To be in enmity is to be in hostility or opposition. And notice, please, it is not merely the actions of man that is at enmity with God. It is the condition and disposition of man that is at enmity with God. It is not merely that what he does is against God, but what he is is against God. What man is conjures up the wrath of God. What man is, is an enemy of God. And so the very condition of our hearts in sin is worthy of condemnation, whether we ever made an action or not. That is how wicked we are. Enmity. Paul says in Romans 5 that we were enemies of God. Colossians 1, enemies in our minds. Man is an enemy, and sinful man needs to understand that they are an enemy of the living God, that their nature and disposition is set against everything that God is. In fact, set against God Himself. And the, the amazing thing is that men are blind to this. 
The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, you are haters of God. But would not the Pharisees, if they were asked, say, we love God? Remember Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and his lusts you will do. But what would the Pharisees say? Oh no, we're of our father God, and we do what he wants us to do. We love God. And so man is blind even. He cannot even recognize that he is a hater of God. He does not even recognize. And I tell you, one day when man sees God face to face and all of the accoutrements are taken away and the veil is taken away and the mask is taken away, you will see sinners with gnashing of teeth. Why? Because they hate God. They hate Jesus. And that will be seen on the last day. That is the real heart of the issue. What does a man think of God? And the Apostle Paul says that man's will, his carnal mind, is an enmity with God. He hates God. He's at war with God. If man could, he would reach up in the very heavens and grab hold of God and bring Him down and even crucify Him and kill Him. For did He not do it? God came incarnate in human flesh, robed in humility and shame. And what did man do? He said, crucify Him. Kill our God. Let the blood flow. Let Him be stripped naked. Crucify our God. Why? Because the heart of the Jews hated God. And no matter what man does, he cannot make himself love God. Another passage that is very clear, and I only read you one verse, is 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, where the Apostle Paul again, now looking at a different aspect of man's will, says that man's, not only is man's carnal mind, his disposition such that he cannot please God, But now he speaks of man's understanding and he says, The natural man, this unsaved man, receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. For they are spiritually discerned. And notice, neither can he know them. You have another word of ability or inability. He cannot know them. It doesn't matter how eloquent a preacher may be. It doesn't matter how much he may plead. A natural man will always see the gospel as foolish. He cannot receive the things of of the Spirit of God. And it is not this cannot. You can't say that this cannot is simply like not having, as I've said before, like having a missing part. I just lack the faculty, as if I'm looking at a blind man and saying, you're blind. Tell me what color this is. He can't tell me. Well, you are condemned simply because you're blind. That is not what's going on. Man cannot because he will not. 
And man's will is what it is because in the garden he chose to rebel against the living God. And humanity was in Adam in that choice. And what man is is why man, is, man does what he does. Man is wicked. It's not just that he's not, he doesn't have a certain faculty like a blind person that doesn't have the ability to see. No, man's heart is fully evil. And man hates the living God. And therefore, man sees the gospel as utter foolishness. And man therein cannot perceive, cannot sense, cannot see anything glorious in the gospel. So he will never receive anything that is of spiritual truth. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. In the last passage, I will turn us to, to make this very clear to us, is John chapter 6. And I want to spend a little bit more time in this in two different verses. John 6.44, the Lord Jesus says, No man can come to me, except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then in verse 65, Jesus says, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Now notice the similarities between these verses and some of the differences. In both, no man can come unto me. Coming unto Jesus is the phrase that is used to speak of saving faith. And Jesus is saying, no man can do this. No man is able to do this. No man can do this. In other words, man lacks the ability to do this. What? Saving faith. Except the Father which has sent me draw him. So, the drawing power of God is necessary for man to come to Jesus. Which tells us that man, again, is not able in and of himself and is mere, in the mere power of his will to come to Christ. But then the Lord Jesus says, And I will raise him up at the last day. And in the original language I've mentioned before, the I will raise him up at the last day is connected to the subjects which are drawn. It is not linguistically possible to look at this sentence and to say that there are some he draws that he does not raise. Everyone Jesus draws, everyone the Father draws, excuse me, will be raised up at the last day. What is this raising up at the last day? He is speaking of the fact that everyone that he draws will be finally and fully saved. Which is why he says in verse 39, This is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Raise it up in resurrection and glory to be with me in heaven for eternity. I will raise them up at the last day. And so no man can come except the Father draws. Everyone the Father draws will be finally saved. This proves that man's will is not free to come to Christ. 
Verse 65, Jesus said again, No man can come except it were given unto him of my Father. And there the coming, the actual coming of a man is described in terms of a gift. It must be given as a gift for man to come. And so man cannot come in and of his own power. But the real clincher for all of this is verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So what will we say then if man's will is not free? What does God do? Well, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. You see there from that text that there was a group of people previously given to the Father, excuse me, to the Son by the Father. A people previously given to the Son by the Father, all that the Father giveth me. This giving precedes their coming. They don't come and then they're given. They're given and then they come. And all that the Father gives Jesus shall come. Their coming is secured. Their coming is certain. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Because Jesus came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of his Father. Which was what? That he would bring to final full salvation everyone that the Father had given him. And why do I draw our attention to this? Because this is the context in which Jesus says, No man can come to me. What is the heart of the issue with free will? It is the work of Christ. What has Christ done? What has Christ purchased? What is Christ's work? Has Christ, merely by his death, provided a provisional atonement for all? Has He merely by His death provided salvation, merely providing, and set it out on a table, and He has said, any who by their own free will may come and take of this salvation, is that what Christ purchased? Or is the work of Christ to come down from heaven to secure The fact that all the Father gave him would not only come, but would be raised. Meaning that Christ purchased not only, not only the forgiveness of sins, but Christ purchased the faith and the repentance and the new birth. Christ purchased the perseverance. Christ purchased the sanctification. We must understand that the work of Christ is a work that enables him to save to the uttermost. Christ fully saves. He 
fully perfects his work through the offering of his body once and for all. Jesus descended the Son from glory incarnate as a man, living this perfect life, fulfilling the law in the stead of his people. We understand. He bore the wrath of God and he fully paid the penalty for sin. In his death, he sunk down under the powers of death and hell and the grave. But then because he fully paid the penalty, he rose up from the grave in resurrection power and for our justification, the end of Romans end of Romans 4 says, he rose up declaring that it has been accepted. The finished work has been made. And now I've been risen. And as he rises then, he ascends to the right hand of his Father. And then he goes in intercession before the Father. And then the Spirit of God takes this blessing of the finished work and applies it to his people. The Father chose, the Son was sacrificed, the Spirit applies. It is a full salvation. It is a full and finished work. And man's will is not the great missing link, so to speak. Man is dead in his sins and trespasses. And brothers and sisters, that is grace. What is grace? Grace is free. If by a man's faith or repentance, then God must give him salvation. Grace is no longer free. Grace is free. And so God has freely given the new birth to his people because it was purchased by the blood of Christ. He has freely taken the heart of stone out from them and given them a heart of flesh. He has freely written the law in their hearts and minds. He has freely pardoned their iniquities. He has freely given them righteousness. And so yes, man must repent. Yes, man must believe. But it is only because Jesus purchased that for him. It's all Jesus. It's all his finished work. It's all Christ. He's done it all. He's done everything necessary to save us to the uttermost. And so God looked upon you, believer, and he saw absolutely nothing in you but wretched sin. There is nothing in you this evening that makes you differ from another man. Charles Spurgeon once was mocking an Arminian's prayer. Not that I want to mock my Arminian brethren at all, but the truth stands. He said, Ah, I thank God that I was smarter than my neighbor. I thank God that I understood the gospel better than my neighbor. I thank God that I was more morally inclined than my neighbor. I thank God, etc., etc. I thank Him for the provision of Jesus. But at the end of the day, for someone who holds to free will, the difference is with me. And for the Calvinist, the difference is with God. And God looked at us and he said in his grace, I will pour upon them mercy for nothing good in them. 
for nothing laudable in them. I will save them by free grace. I'm going to make some of them an object of my undying love, an object of my free and sovereign grace. I will set my love upon them. I will hold them up in glory and say, look, look, heaven. Look, you angels. Look in wonder. Look, look at a man who is depraved. Look at a man who is full of sin. Look at a man who is nothing good in him. And look how he's crowned with loving kindness and tender mercies. Look how I've washed his sin away. Look how I've made him righteous. Look how I brought him into glory. And all the angels in wonder, love, and praise will shout hallelujah for the God of grace. The God of sovereign, free grace would do such a thing for man. You see, it's, it's not like someone say, here is man and, and they're drowning in the ocean and they're crying out for help, but, but, the, but the reformers taught that God would only choose to save a couple. And they said, oh, what an unloving God that he would only save a couple. No, it's not that way. It's that here is a man who is a criminal, who has killed your own son, who has set your house on fire, who hates you, who's a murderer, who's a rebel, who does all things that he can to destroy not only his own life, but everyone else's life, and is running headlong into hell, and laughing, and enjoying it, and wants to run away from God, and loves his sin, and as he goes, God should say, go and die, go in your sin, he should leave the man, but he doesn't leave us. He rushes to our aid and he plucks us as a brand from the fire and he gives us mercy. He gives us grace. And so for Luther, the heart of a gracious gospel, the heart of a gracious doctrine was the bondage of man's will. Because if man's will is not in bondage, then grace is not free. But to anyone this evening that thinks, say a brief word, anybody who thinks, well, if my will is in bondage, I can't do anything. I'm just going to sit and wait for God to save me. God has commanded us to believe and to repent. And it is not for man to ask or to wonder, is God working in me? We are held accountable for not believing and not repenting. You say, well, it's not fair I'm held accountable for not believing and not repenting. I can't believe and repent. Are, you, are we not held accountable for not obeying the Ten Commandments? Can any man obey the Ten Commandments? None. Of course you're held accountable because your heart is sinful. Of course you're held accountable because you're a monster of sin. But what this should do, and I remember it in my own soul, is to cause us to get along with God and to cry to Him for mercy. Because here's the wonderful thing. That darkness that you see in your heart, you know you don't love Him. You know it's not a reality to you. And you feel you can't fix it. And so you keep trying to cover it up. You keep trying to put a mask on. 
but you know you can't fix it. You want to pretend you're really a Christian, but you know you really love your sin. Here's the wonderful thing. There is one who is able to do it. He is able to come down in glory and to make you a new man, to give you a new heart. He's able. He's able to make you into the person you don't think you can be, to give you love for God. Cry to Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. We trust that God will bless his word this evening. Let's end with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy rich mercies, for grace that is rich and free. Father, we all confess we did not lift one finger and our salvation. It is all of thee. And we bow in humble adoration to the God who is love. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. We bless you. In Jesus' name.